This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 377th episode, we have a bunch of news. Sabrina's doing all the news, so I don't even know what it is. The new Titanosaur. Also, some more information about the asteroid that killed off all the non-avian dinosaurs. Oh, that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. We also have an interview with Roy Plotnick. And we have Dinosaur of the Day, Kazaklambia, or Kazaklambia. But before we get into all of that, we want to thank some of our patrons. And this week, we'd like to thank Burnsosaurus, Aaron Rose Emsworthsaurus, Jesse, Achilosaurus, JC, Albertosaurus, Talon, Jonah, Eric, and Viatus. Awesome. Thank you so much for being part of our community. We really appreciate all of our listeners and our patrons. Jumping into the news, are you ready for this, Garrett? I am. So it's a new titanosaur with Gondwanan affinities, <laughs> lived in the late Cretaceous in Europe, in okay. what is now Europe. So it's Gondwanan affinities because it's from Laurasia, but it seems like it looks like a Gondwana type, like a maybe a Patagonia type titanosaur. It's mostly, yeah, there's a lot of features that make it seem different from European sauropods, mainly that it was much bigger. Hmm. So first, I'll, I'll get into the name. It was named and described by Bernat Vila and others in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution. And the new titanosaur is called Abditosaurus cunei. Now, being a titanosaur, it had a long, thick neck and walked on four legs. But it also had this unique combination of characters that's not seen in other titanosaurs. There's a lot of different details in the bones. One example is it had a robust humerus which is different from other titanosaurs in the area. So the specimen, it's about 70 and a half million years old. It was found semi-articulated. It's the most complete titanosaur found so far in Europe. Oh, nice. Yeah. And it's considered to be a, quote, very mature, senescent individual, end quote. That's the word you were using before, like senile. It's old, yeah. <laughs> but on like the trail end of old, where it's not really growing at all anymore. Yeah. Which is something that dinosaurs kind of stretch their growth way out into age. Yes. And the craziest thing about it is it's the largest titanosaur found in what was then the Ibero-Armorican Island. And that's what is now Spain, Portugal, and France. It's estimated to be about 57 feet or 17 and a half meters long and weigh 30,800 pounds or about 14,000 kilograms, which is a very large titanosaur for this area and time of what's now Europe because Europe had all of those islands and there tended to be a lot of dwarf dinosaurs. 
Yeah, that's definitely not a dwarf. 15 tons and 57 feet long. Mm-hmm. Although not as big as some of the titanosaurs in Gondwana. Yeah, but we're not in Gondwana. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> the paper said it, quote, is more than 70% larger than the largest known adult at Singinosaurus and Gariga Titan. It's more than twice the size of the largest individuals attributed to Lorainsaurus or Lohuecotitan and 20% larger than the largest individual attributed to Ampelosaurus, end quote. Okay, so 20% larger than the next largest contemporary sauropod. Yep, which is what makes it so interesting. It was found in the southern Pyrenees, in what is now Spain, and the fossils were first found back in 1954 by Walter Kuhn, who sent some of them to Madrid and kept some of the fossils there. Funding, unfortunately, ran out. So there was no more field work until 1986, and then apparently more fossils were being excavated, and then a big storm led to the dig being canceled or postponed. It's hard to find the details. And then they had another expedition between 2012 and 2014. Oh, man. So it took from 1954 to 2014, like 60 years? Yes. And so that brings me to the genus name, Abditosaurus, means forgotten reptile because it took 60 years from when the fossils was first found to being fully excavated. Yeah, that's not... A lot of times we've seen things that took 60 years like to be named, but usually they all got excavated and then they sat in a lab somewhere or sat on a shelf somewhere in a collection. Mm -hmm. Not usually sat in the ground for 60 years after initially being discovered. Yeah. It's fortunate. There must be fairly mild weather in that area of Spain. Oh, that, that it, it was exposed and it was still okay. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe it wasn't all the way exposed. I don't know. Or they at least knew where to look. Mm -hmm. And the species name Kunai is in honor of Walter Kuhn, who found the first fossil, so that makes sense. They found 53 skeletal elements that includes teeth, vertebrae, ribs, a limb, pelvic bones, and part of the neck of an estimated 14 cervical vertebrae in the neck. They found parts of 12, which kind of goes back to the last week's episode. We were talking about incomplete sauropod necks. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's hard. You could say like, well, we found 12 vertebrae, but it's parts of the 12 vertebrae. Yeah. <laughs> and again, they're just guessing there's 14 vertebrae, but maybe there were 17. <laughs> we, we don't really know. But it's still a, a fairly complete neck. Yeah. Which is good. It's considered to be a saltosaurid. Those tend to be smaller sauropods. Many of them are known to have armor. And it's specifically in a clade of saltosaurines that include dinosaurs from what is now South America and Africa, those Gondwanan affinities. That's cool. I like saltosaurids. Mm -hmm. I got the osteoderm sometimes. <laughs> yeah, osteoderms are cool. Now, based on Abditosaurus being large for its ecosystem, you know, there's all the dwarf dinosaurs around it, it could be that it was a recent arrival to this area. Maybe sea levels dropped and then it migrated over. It's also got a lack of features related to insular dwarfism or, you know, reducing itself in size. For example, there's no modified laminar bone, and that's a bone tissue that might be related to a reduced metabolism and smaller body size. And there's no evidence for any metabolic adaptations for living on an island. There were also some eggshells found in the locality, the same site where the fossils were found. And those eggshells are the same as eggshells known from Gondwana. It's specifically Fusiolithus bagensis, and those had been found in India. 
And in addition to the eggshells, they found plants, gastropods, and crocodilomorph and dromaeosaur teeth hmm. in the same area. Yeah. And apparently there was a 2017 documentary about this finding called Europe's Last Giant. So if anyone wants more information. Cool. Yeah, way before they had a name for it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Five years after the documentary. Yeah, so pretty cool. That is a nice sounding titanosaur. Big old saltosaurid in Europe. Yeah. Glad I got to sneak another sauropod news item in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just so easy. <laughs> now the next news item is a recent study that found that the Chicxulub asteroid hit Earth during the late spring in the northern hemisphere. So we're narrowing down the time period for this. Yeah, that's very specific. Yeah. Although we don't know what year, <laughs> just that it was the late spring in some year around 66 million years ago. That's true. <laughs> it's still pretty cool that you can narrow it down that much. Mm -hmm. This was a paper in Scientific Reports by Robert De Palma and others. And they found that, yeah, in the northern hemisphere, this hit in the late spring, maybe May or June. And that helps confirm a 1991 study by Jack Wolf that found, based on plants, that the impact probably happened in June. Hmm. So we were thinking about this for a while, and I had no idea. Yeah, plants make sense because plants change seasonally quite a bit around the world. And since it was a global catastrophe, there should be a lot of plants affected and fossilizing where you might get some good information. Yeah. And now the impact, we've talked about this before, it basically started winter. There was no sun, it got very cold, the atmosphere was contaminated. Because this happened in spring in the northern hemisphere, that really amplified the effect because mm. the plants and the animals that would have been in this growth and reproduction mode would have been really affected. And it's hard for animals that are sensitive to seasonal shifts. It's also bad for species that might take a long time to reach sexual maturity, or maybe they can only breed under certain specific conditions. Yeah, that's true. I, I imagine like things hibernating. Mm -hmm. They're just coming out of hibernation and they're ready to get their fat stores back up and then all the food goes away. Or we, we've talked about before like cicadas every 17 years and maybe that was the year of some animal was like ready to come out and breed, but then it got wiped out. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe this won't surprise you then. It might not have affected the animals in the southern hemisphere as much because they were in their fall and winter season. Uh, yeah, maybe. Although the studies that showed that the winter lasted like five to 15 years mm -hmm. makes me think, well, if I'm if I'm just getting out of winter season and I'm hungry, would I really be better off if the winter just never ended? <laughs> like we went into winter and then it just kept going True. for five years. Like, True. You, you would still need all the calories and to bulk back up somehow. But I think you're kind of doomed either way. Yeah. Maybe it's a little less of a shock. though. It could be. So the team, they studied the Tainus geological site in the Hell Creek Formation in North Dakota. Ooh, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. And the sediments help show what happened immediately after the impact. The lower layer has debris from the impact and fossils of plants, trees, and animals, like ammonites, fish, turtles, reptiles, dinosaurs, and more, animals that died that day. And that included bones and some soft tissues. And then the upper layer had fallen ash. And we talked about this in episode 228 when the site was first published about. Yeah, it's a really amazing site. And that's basically the only other time we'd heard any details about it. We've just been waiting and waiting. There were all those fish that died in the really, it looked like they had a bunch of basically glass stuck in their gills that rained down, little spherules yeah, and stuff oh, like that. That would have been painful. Although I guess quick. Maybe, yeah. Hopefully. So yeah, they were looking at the fish again. 
think that's the main thing at that site. They analyzed paddlefish and sturgeon from multiple growth stages, and they found the bone growth in the fish was cut short. And that could mean that they died during peak growing season, which is likely in the spring and summer. Also, carbon isotopic ratios showed that they died during a period of quote-unquote heightened productivity when they were eating more, and they tend to eat more in the spring and summer. The oxygen-stable isotope ratios also helped show that the fish died in the spring or summer because the lighter values correlated with being in freshwater and the heavier values correlated with being in the saltwater. And when the fish died, they had ratios consistent with being in freshwater. And a lot of living sturgeon, for example, also tend to live in saltwater during the winter and freshwater during the spring and summer where they spawn. Oh, I see. So as long as those 66 million-year-old sturgeon had the same behavior. Yeah. <laughs> but that happens all the time where you're comparing modern yeah. living animals to the fossils. The fish body size in the growth series also helped show that it was mid-spring to late summer. And they looked at body sizes relative to the growth rate. And then they estimated the time between when it hatched and when it died. And based on how large these sub-yearling fish were, they figured out the season. Hmm. They also looked at woody stemmed plants, like trees and shrubs, to help figure out the time of year. And they looked at insect activity, specifically what's known as leaf mining. And leaf mining tends to have a regular pattern of larvae hatch, usually in the spring, and then they seek out leaves and they burrow inside, leaving behind a distinct pattern. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. Just all little holes in leaves. Mm -hmm. So did they find leaf mining? And that's why they think it was spring? Yes. Lots of leaf mining at this site, and leaf mining happens a lot during peak growing season, and that's usually in the spring and summer. Okay. They also analyzed mayfly fossils. Adult mayflies don't live long. They tend to emerge in the spring and summer over a few weeks. In May, maybe. <laughs> yeah. May and June, I'm guessing. Usually, they live for hours or days before they die in large groups, and we're basing this on living mayflies, what we see. Hmm. They also burrow and deposit their larvae which mature over months or years. And they found a lot of mayfly fossils as well as mayfly burrow casts and some preserved larval mayflies. They're saying that future research at other locations would help confirm this idea that it happened in late spring to summer. The fossils are on private land, so De Palma has exclusive excavation rights. However, a lot of other researchers have visited the site and worked on the material. So I wonder what else we'll learn from this area Sounds like there could be a lot of information left to mine. And we've got two shorter news items. The first one is the House of Representatives of Washington State in the U.S. are considering a bill to make Sushasaurus Rex the official state dinosaur. Yeah. <laughs> I know, you're, you're not <laughs> thrilled because it's not been described yet. Yep. But the fossil was found in 2012 from paleontologists from the Burke Museum. Is a theropod femur, about 80 million years old, and it was found at Susha State Park in San Juan Islands. It might be similar to Displetosaurus, and for now it's nicknamed Sushasaurus rex. And this is all in the works because students at an elementary school did research and basically asked. There's another class in their school that proposed a state insect, and this group of students proposing the state dinosaur, they wanted to honor their teacher who loves dinosaurs. It's nice. Yeah, I'll it is. give them that. That is nice. It'd be well, nice if it was a real dinosaur. Well, though. who doesn't want a state dinosaur? Hopefully they'll update it to a different dinosaur if they get a better discovery in their state. Or if this one gets fully described. There's not much to describe. <laughs> yeah. Well, I hope it works out. 
Last, thank you to our patron, Eric, who shared this one with us. Colorado Northwestern Community College and Forever Malone Productions made a short film called Devil in the Desert, a Jurassic World fan film. And our patron, Eric, stars in it. It's pretty fun to watch. It's only about 20 minutes. These events take place after Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. There's dinosaurs roaming about. And the team is at an actual dig site doing a dig. So you get to learn a bit and see what life is like while excavating. And then the twist is they hear something. As a spoiler, they encounter a Carnotaurus. And then CGI is pretty nice. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And now we're going to go on to our interview with Roy Plotnick. But as always, we have an extended edition for our patrons, also known as the unabridged edition. So if you're a patron and you'd rather listen to a longer cut, then head over to your premium content feed and grab it there. We're joined this week by Roy Plotnick, a professor emeritus in the Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences at the University of Illinois at Chicago. He is also a fellow of the Geological Society of America and the Paleontological Society and author of the book Explorers of Deep Time, Paleontologists and the History of Life. And that's why we're talking to him today. Thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure to be here. So we really enjoyed your book. And I know it's about clearing up misconceptions about paleontology, describing the big questions that drive the field, like how did life on Earth come to be and how paleontology's changed and how life on Earth has changed and how life is going to change in the future. 
And then there's also this really great, for our listeners, overview of paleontology. It covers a lot of topics in one place that I don't think we've really seen too much elsewhere. And then, of course, you also draw on your own experience for the book and then spotlight a mm -hmm. lot of paleontologists to their stories. So there's a lot of great stuff going on. I guess the first question I have is, what was your inspiration for this sort of book? And then how did you decide which topics to cover? Well, I, I think I've always said there's a, both a explicit and an implicit goal of writing this and why I wanted to write it as I did. The first was, as we all do as paleontologists, get the, the inevitable questions of, you know, how many dinosaurs have you found? Or uh, <laughs> do you go on digs and collect pots? And how much gold <laughs> have you found? Or, you know, and when we see paleontologists in the media, they tend to be male, they tend to be white, with, with the one exception of the of the character in the original Jurassic Park movie. So part of it was just sort of getting away from explaining to people, you know, that most paleontologists actually don't study dinosaurs, even though we think they're cool, and that paleontology is actually a, a diverse field and method and technique. It's also, I, I can say this is implicit to me, explaining to colleagues in the other areas of science that paleontology is not an old-fashioned field. <laughs> there used to be the old paleontologist stamp collectors meme that was going around <laughs> that somehow we're not a hot, cutting-edge science. And this has unfortunately been reflected in the in the long-term decline in the number of positions for paleontologists in academia. And the idea is to sell paleontology as a discipline that needs to be in every university and college either biology and or geology department in the country and in museums. So I say those are my sort of my, my two goals. And then it became clear that I don't think there's ever, anybody's ever done a field sort of a snapshot. There are a lot of, uh, this is books that sort of are, here's my career in the science. Mm -hmm. So something like Lab Girls, an excellent example of that. Or they focus on specific areas of a science or they do, for example, recent books come out on paleontology, an area about a book about a particular group of dinosaurs or just dinosaurs. But there hasn't been what I think a snapshot of any scientific discipline that sort of says, what do we actually do? How do we spend our time? Hmm. So mm -hmm. multiple sort of goals in writing this to sort of explain what do scientists actually do? What do paleontologists actually do? So I have to say it's, it's not a book about paleontology. It's a book about paleontologists. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How many paleontologists did you talk to? Uh, I think it's, I did a count of something like 50 or 60 of <laughs> wow. my colleagues. I'd have to go through the, the actual number in the acknowledgements. But I spoke to a lot of people, starting with graduate students and postdocs at Yale, where I did the, the bulk of the work, and then a lot of pe people that I know. I've been Again, I've been in a paleontology in one respect or other since 1973. So I, I know a lot of people. <laughs> and a lot of people were very glad to share their stories and backgrounds with me. And then there were people I sort of said, well, I really need to talk to uh, artists. So people who do paleo art. So then I, some people I, I had met or I knew like Ray Troll, but others I had seen their art and I said, well, they should be somebody I should talk to. So I would reach out to them. And almost with one exception, almost everybody was willing to to be quoted and uh, in, in the book. Oh, good. So, yeah. 
Do you have any favorite stories? I think in terms of the fun ones, I mean, the stories that Pedro Marenko and, and uh, Steve Donber shared about doing field work in Mongolia, hmm. back looking at sort of the uh, earliest Precambrian, the field site they were in was also where people had been dumping carcasses oh, of dead uh, horses and so on. <laughs> oh, no. And they quickly discovered because one of them landed in, and I'm going to gross people out in the eye of a student who was with them, there were flies, a carcass, fl- flies that hung around uh, carcasses of animals and uh, tended to create diseases. Mm-hmm. So they think the animals died from this, perhaps from being infected by these flies. That's why they were dumped there. And then they ended up getting attacked by them themselves. Even one of them hit Pedro in the, in the glasses. <laughs> so that was sort of like, and, you know, that tied into, if you go back to uh, George Gaylord Simpson's writings about working in Patagonia back in the 1920s and 30s, and he talks about the flies and the mm-hmm. bad food and the, and the wind, it sounded very much like what, what Steve and Pedro were telling me was going on in, in Mongolia these days. Yeah, the flies in in rural places are intense. We mm-hmm. we haven't spent that much time out in you know the middle of nowhere, paleontologically speaking. But we were in the outback of Australia, and the flies there were like, "Why are they not afraid? They have no. They go. They'll like. They would go in between your glasses and your eye, and sort of like yeah. gather there. <laughs> it was, uh, so the, unpleasant. <laughs> when I when I was an undergraduate, I heard a Harrison Schmidt who was the geologist who became an astronaut, I think later on a senator. And he gave a lecture and he said, the best thing about doing geology on the moon is that there were no black flies. (laughs) (laughs) That is a win. They got a good helmet too. So even if there was a fly. Even if it was a fly. So yeah. (laughs) So the field work always always has challenges. Yeah. Yeah. Mongolia always has interesting stories too. It seems like just one of the best places, and Argentina too. Yeah, well, again, I always say 90% of any geologist's stories are geologists, but what happened to them out in the field? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at least traditionally, about 90% of those involved alcohol. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that's, a, that's a thing. <laughs> so, but there, that being said, you do point out that there are some misconceptions that paleontologists are always like Indiana Jones or Roy Chapman Andrews out in the fields, you know, breaking ground and things like that. But Or Ross from Friends. Yeah. <laughs> but there's a, a wide variety of paleontologists around the sites. Yeah. I do a little bit of field work myself, but I don't consider myself a field paleontologist. And I think a lot of people like that. I do work in the lab or on the computer. And there are people who spend all their time doing data analysis they essentially say, well, all this work's been done by my colleagues out there in the field collecting the fossils and describing the fossils. And they're trying to get at large-scale patterns in the evolution of life, and then they use computer databases to do that. Hmm. Or we use material that's already been collected and we use various kinds of high-tech instruments to study them. So um, there are a lot of people who are laboratory-based or computer-based doing data analytical studies. For paleontologists, big data. Mm-hmm. kind of stuff, or people trying to work out using very detailed computer programs, how things are related to each other. So there's a, a huge number of varieties of, of intellectual pursuits that paleontologists do. I enjoy, and I you know, a lot of my colleagues enjoy getting out in the field, but once you're back, you come back, there's lots of stuff to do with the fossils that you've worked on. 
Yeah, yeah. It does seem like, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like most paleontologists spend a, a big majority of their time in a lab or at a desk compared with in the field. That, that is correct. That's exactly correct. Most of the time, some of them, almost all their time at a desk <laughs> and doing things. I liked your quote from the book. Uh, we use big data on big computers to ask big questions, and then we go outside and find trial bites. Yeah, it's <laughs> exact, exactly right. I, I mean, I get itchy. I mean, you know, every once in a while, I just I just have to get out and, and bang on the rocks for a while and collect some fossils, even if they're just going to go into our teaching collection. And it's, it's always fun to find something, oh, look at that. I've never collected one of those before. The other thing, too, is this, you do want to do some checking yourself. I think you have to have an intuitive feel for what where the fossils come from in order to fully, before you put them into the databases or to understand what the databases are telling you, to understand really, this is what a fossil looks like in its home environment <laughs> before you start saying it's, an, it's a digital number. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely true, especially when you're looking at like estimates of dates and sometimes they get out of date and, you know, someone needs to do some up-to-dated sedimentology and seeing where it actually yeah, is in I the mean, rock layer and stuff yeah. like that. I did my doctoral thesis on uh, Eurypterids, uh, sea scorpions, as people call them. Mm -hmm. And I've actually kind of come full circle decades later and I'm back to working on them again. And a lot of my recent times and Here's a specimen that was collected in 1890. Where, what is the actual modern day stratigraphy of that specimen? Where did it come from? This past year, I went out to uh, New York and located a locality where a Eurypterid of probably about a two meter long thing was originally mm -hmm. discovered back, back in the 1890s. And we relocated the locality. Nice. Mm -hmm. And I went with some colleagues of mine. And that was really fun to say, Nobody's been to this locality in over a century. Yeah. So I'm going to do that again, hopefully this coming uh, spring out in Pennsylvania to look at some of the other ones. I didn't collect any Eurypterids this trip, but you know, it, it was nice to go out and bang on rocks. That's yeah. awesome. How did you end up, what was the process like for figuring out that original locality? First of all, the original publication just basically said, it's near this particular town <laughs> in, in a small quarry. And then I found a paper written in 1940 where some where it was said, I talked to a guy who knew, basically I knew a guy who knew a guy who <laughs> said it was, a, it was in a small quarry on this farm up the hill from the public library. <laughs> so uh, I and a couple of my colleagues, we started at the public library and we crossed the little river and walked up the hill. And sure enough, there were some exposed Devonian rocks. Good thing the library was still there. Yeah. The library was still there. The war <laughs> memorial was still there. That was given as a landmark. And we were able to relocate the, the site. And we found plants, so some neat plants that hmm. uh, are now at the New York State Museum, but uh, we did not find any, uh, any Eurypterids. So it, in the book, I know you talk about different challenges and good things about paleontology. And we've talked a little bit about challenges of field work, finding localities that have been you know, no one's looked at them for a hundred years, being out in the field in general with the conditions. And I know there's also like, there's accessibility, inclusion, any advice for people who might be starting out, like in navigating all, some of these challenges? You know, I, I wrote a blog piece recently sort of towards this, because one of the things that happens to a lot of my colleagues, and I talk about some of the stories in the book, but 
If you look at the, our Facebook posts, you'll see a lot of this. You know, somebody sent me this picture of a concretion <laughs> or some other object, and they insisted it was a dinosaur brain or a dinosaur bone or a turtle egg and things like that. I think you can start simple. You know, something like the Golden Guide to Fossils. This is a wonderful thing to look at. Mm -hmm. Get an idea of what actual fossils act, you know, look like. Go to the local museum get to see what the museums look like there. And I am a big fan of, of fossil clubs. I'm a member myself of the Earth Science Club of Northern Illinois, or SCONY. And there are people there who know a lot more about the local fossils than I do, mm -hmm. especially the Maison Creek material. So get, take the time to actually like look at the look at some inch beginning books. There are websites that are out there that are just really really good websites that illustrate a lot of local fossils. Uh, the Paleontological Research Institute runs some has a whole bunch of sites of here are some what fossils look like. Mm -hmm. But get to know what fossils look like, and then learn a little bit about how fossils are preserved, so you get a sense of that things like uh, had a, a gentleman who could not understand why I would, he was not seeing a turtle eye in this concretion, <laughs> you know? So, you know, if, if you come in with a little bit of basic knowledge first, then you can talk to the paleontologist and say, could you explain a little bit more to me about what's going on? But, the, you know, there's all people who will never, never accept it, that we're telling them something different. But, uh, you know, there, is, there, is, there are lots of basic paleontology books out there. Again, the Golden Guide is, uh, I think there's... Um, an Audubon book, those are good places to look. Again, spend time at the local museum looking at what's there and talk to local collectors. Mm -hmm. Awesome. That's some really good advice. Yeah. I haven't heard much about fossil clubs before. No. Yeah. But that sounds like it makes sense if it's, it's, so those are people that spend all their time in the same area looking at the same kind of rock so they can pick out a fossil probably a lot quicker than anybody yeah. else. Uh, as an example, um, again, the, uh, Famous fossil, there's a couple of famous fossil sites near Chicago, but the most famous is the, the Maison Creek. And Maison Creek is a Pennsylvanian in age, Lagerstätten, a place of unique fossil preservation. We have uh, actually the first fossil described from there was an insect. Hmm. So you have insects, of flies. <laughs> insects uh, various arachnids, fish, a whole host of different crustaceans, horseshoe crabs. Eurypterids, uh, amphibians, larval. I mean, it's just a tremendously diverse place. A shrimp. Oh, wow. Uh, and, and lots and lots of plants. Gorge, I mean, pretty much. And for a long time, uh, there were strip mines in, in this area. And so people would go out and collect material there. Hmm. And almost everybody who grew up at a certain age in Chicago has, my wife included, has fossil leaves from there. <laughs> You go to uh, flea markets or sometimes to garage sales, you'll see buckets full of, of Maison Creek fossils. And so the people at Ascone, this is one of the things they really know about. They have published books on identifying the fossils from the Maison Creek and how to know about them. There are fossils named after the club. Oh, wow. Esconicthes and things like that <laughs> are named after mem or members of the club. Um the most famous probably Maison Creek fossil is something called the Tully Monster. Oh, that oh, sounds familiar. It does sound familiar. The Tully Monstrum Gagarium. Tully it doesn't have anything to do with Sesame Street. That's what <laughs> it sounds like. But uh, Mr. Tully discovered the fossil, and uh, again, an avocational collector. 
he brought it to the Field Museum. This is back in the 50s, and it ended up being described. And we still have disputes about exactly what it is. But it is the amateur collectors who've collected these things that have brought it to the attention of the public. Uh, I am, this is one of those papers that I've been working on for a couple of years now with colleagues, but uh, we've been working on something called Essex Ella, hmm. which is a, uh, was described back in the 70s. It's the most common fossil from, from the Maison Creek animal fossil. Uh, the collectors called them blobs. <laughs> and they would l- often leave them behind because, well, it's a blob. It's not a blob. <laughs> and it was described as a jellyfish. Because uh, you can imagine, jellyfish are really rare fossils. Yeah. And if you look at reconstructions of Maison Creek, you'll see lots of uh, uh, jellyfish swimming around. I was looking at this with a colleague, and I said, wait a minute, that's upside down. <laughs> and you turn it upside down, and it's quite clearly a sea anemone. Oh. So it turns out to be uh, a sea anemone, and we're about to finish just re-describing it as a sea anemone. But... <laughs> Almost every fossil that we are working on in the paper is one that was collected by a local amateur. Wow. Cool. And deposited in the museum. I have a few that I bought at flea markets <laughs> or were in our teaching collection at my university, again, donated by, by local collectors. So if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have been able to do the work. And I'm not going to go out and try to find more. I don't need to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're there. That's cool. Yeah. So fossil collecting, that's, you mentioned in the book, that's like one of many pathways people could take to become a paleontologist. That's right. Do you have any advice for people who are looking or, you know, how they might find out, like, is this for me kind of thing? I would say uh, besides, uh, well, read my book. Yes. <laughs> yes, there's a lot of details and a lot of great resources in there. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot, lot, of, lot of things in there. And again, again, the local club's a good place to do. If you do want to do this seriously, then talk to the local paleontologist. Find a local college or a university or museum and see if you can make an appointment to talk to them. But find out what it gets involved to being that. The thing to recognize, and again, this gets back to the stereotyping, is that you can be a paleontologist whose training is in geology. You can be a paleontologist whose training is in biology. And there are people who publish extensively in paleontology whose background is in physics or mathematics. Uh, so there's lots of paths to the field. But I, I think paleontologists is by their very nature extremely diverse in their backgrounds. Mm-hmm. We have to know geology because that's where the fossils are found. But you have to know biology because that's what the fossils are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and you can't make sense of the fossils if you don't know something about biology, how organisms are put together, how they're assembled, how what they look like. But you can't make sense of them, too, unless you understand the processes of fossilization. Mm. So, again, I'm going to use the, the sea anemone as an example. Once I realized these things were anemones... Then I had to do a deep dive into the literature of anemone biology to understand how anemones were assembled. So that meant looking at a lot of books and papers about sea anemones. But the way these things are preserved, they are flattened and they are decayed. So you have we had to make sense of it from the processes of how fossils are formed, the decay processes. 
but also the geological processes by which these things are preserved too. Mm-hmm. So it's it's you can't be a one-note siloed scientist in paleontology. You have to be very broad in your outlook. And so you have to know, depends on, again, what you want to do in the long term, but you can't know just one thing. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So even if you don't necessarily want to try all the options, it's good to have a grounding in all the different fields anyway, just so that you know how to do your job. <laughs> that, that's exactly right. I mean, I took geology. I was a geology undergraduate. But when I, one of the first things I did as a graduate student is I went out to a marine laboratory, spent a summer taking marine invertebrate zoology. Hmm. And it still has an influence to actually, you know, pick up these animals alive and see what they look like alive. Helped me picture what they look like when they were dead. Hmm. And again, a lot of my colleagues in vertebrate paleontology, I mean, a lot of vertebrate paleontologists uh, know anatomy and teach anatomy mm-hmm. because they, they that's what they need to know, the anatomy of, of modern things to understand what the anatomy of extinct ones were. Oh, definitely. That brings me to, I think one of my favorite parts of your book was when you're talking about like the relevance of paleontology. There's a quote here, without fossils, we would have a very biased perspective on life on earth today and kind of like the lessons that we can learn from things that lived so long ago and all the extinction mm-hmm. events and everything. Yeah, exactly right. You know, the way I sometimes phrase it, we know what happens when things go bad. <laughs> <laughs> And so, you know, we've, because we've seen it before at the end of the Permian when we had massive volcanic eruptions and what happened to life then when, you know, a rock got dropped on the earth <laughs> at the end of the Cretaceous. What happened to life then when temperatures spiked at the, at the end of the Paleocene or Eocene thermal maximum? So we have a direct knowledge of the impact of physical changes on the environment on life on earth. And so that gives us, I think, a unique perspective of saying, we've seen this happen before, and also how is what's happening today different mm-hmm. than what has happened before? One of the uh, objections I often have to training we get people get in biology today is it tends to be very ahistorical. Mm-hmm. Yes, you may get a little bit of attention to evolution in a class, but most biologists, I don't think, really think about how did what we see today come to be? going out and looking at modern day ecology and recognizing, not recognizing a lot of what we see in modern, if we go out here in Illinois, we go out to the local forest preserves and we look around and try to do, look at ecology of the modern forest preserves and say, well, in actuality, that is a very human made landscape. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We don't recognize that 14,000 years ago, there were, there were basically perpicidians wandering around out there, <laughs> you know, and we, we know that they were there, but that is a, the, the, the landscape we see today is human. And if you don't recognize the human impact on what we see on, in ecology, then we're going to make mistakes about what thinking about the, what the natural world is really like mm-hmm. in that regard. And just recognizing that what we see today is the product of a long history is what I think we do more than anybody else. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I do think about that sometimes when I'm going for a hike and I see birds and I think the only reason these birds are here is because they can fly over all the city that surrounds this park. <laughs> there aren't any, <laughs> you know, bears or anything because they're stuck in Canada and they can't make their way down through all the, <laughs> the cities that are blocking their way. <laughs> yeah. 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 Re- recognizing history that's that's of recent origin and history of deep time. That's what we do. We recognize 
that everything is ecological systems, biological systems, and the end of a product of a long of a history of evolution. And that's what we see. Yeah. I think another part of your book that both of us really enjoyed was the end. You did the SWOT analysis oh, yeah. of yes. paleontology. It's the first time I've seen a paleontologist do a SWOT analysis. That was enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> I think the nicest thing was the the strengths, because it's strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. The strengths section seemed the longest and best, which <laughs> was a, a nice thing to see. <laughs> Oh, okay. So I, you know, again, I, I'm looking at this. This is this is a sales thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm telling, grabbing people by the lapels and saying, paleontology is is really an important field, and it's got a lot of intellectual strengths, and it's got a lot of importance, and you need to pay attention. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Especially we're talking about modern extinction events happening, and all sorts of like you were saying, you can learn from the past. What kind of environmental changes affected the things on Earth? It's good mm-hmm. to know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, how what's going on today either is or isn't like what happened before. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. So we've got one last question then for our listeners. If they wanted to find out more about you and your work, where's the best place for them to go? Well, I do have a website that you can get to from the University of Illinois at Chicago Earth and Environmental Sciences Departmental website. I have a Google page you can get to through that. Awesome. Great. Yeah, we'll include that in the show notes. And of course, your book, people should definitely pick that up. Definitely pick that up. Yes. (laughs) Explorers of deep time. (laughs) Yes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It was a really great conversation. Thank you. Enjoyed having it too. Thanks so much for chatting with us, Roy. And for our listeners, definitely recommend Explorers of Deep Time. It was a fun read. And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Kazaklambia, which was a request from Crovia, our Patreon and Discord, so thanks. Kazaklambia was a lambiosaurine that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Kazakhstan, in the Debrajan Formation. And as a quick reminder, lambiosaurines are the hadrosaurs that have a big crest on their head, like Parasaurolophus, although I'm sure Kazaklambia doesn't have as big of a crest as Parasaurolophus did. It's hard to compete with that crest. <laughs> yeah. Casaglambia had a bulky body, and it could walk on all fours, and it had a small, hollow crest on the top of its head. It's only a small crest. hmm The femur was about 22 inches or 56 centimeters long, and the humerus was about 13 inches or 33 centimeters long. And it's estimated to weigh 846 pounds or 384 kilograms based on the length of its femur. That is very specific. Yes. But not that heavy. No. It is one of the earliest known lambiosaurines. The type species is Casaglambia convincens. And we talked a little bit about it in episode 350 in our hadrosaur hootenanny, but we covered a lot of hadrosaurs in that episode. I'm glad I named that episode hadrosaur hootenanny, just so you <laughs> had to join in the fun. <laughs> Whenever we refer to it, yeah. And the genus name Casaglambia means Casaglambiosaurine, and it refers to where it was found. The species name, Convincens, refers to the, quote, conviction that this specimen proved a Cretaceous age for the Debrazinskaya Svita. That's really funny. They named it Convincens after the conviction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I like that. <laughs> it was originally described in 1968 as Prochenosaurus Convincens, 
so it always had that conviction, was by Anatoly Rozdezvensky. It was also referred to Carithosaurus for a while. And then in 2013, Phil Bell and Kirsten Brink named it Kazaglambia. In 1990, Weishampel and Horner, and again in 2004, Horner, synonymized it with Jaxartosaurus arulensis. But then in 2000, Norman and Sue said that the two, Kazaglambia and Jaxartosaurus, had enough differences and were found in different stratigraphic locations. So it made sense to keep, well, at the time, Prochenosaurus convincence, because it hadn't been named Kazaglambia yet, as a distinct taxon. But they thought it was a questionable dinosaur and suggested it may need a replacement generic name. Now, by 2013, Prochenosaurus was no longer considered to be a valid genus, so Prochenosaurus convincens needed to be redescribed and renamed. Oh, I see. So it didn't really get split from Prochenosaurus. Prochenosaurus was completely invalidated, but they had a, a, other than the type species of that genus, Convincens was in there, so that they needed to make a new genus mm-hmm. for Convincens. That's an interesting way to have a dinosaur get a new genus name. Yeah. So then in 2013, Bell and Brink did it, and they said Kazaglambia, formerly Prochenosaurus Convincens, was different enough in its dome to have this name. They also found it to have a different growth trajectory from other juvenile Lambiosaurines. And then in 2016, Albert Prieto Marquez and others confirmed the type specimen for Kazaklambia. These fossils were found in 1961 by G.A. Belenki. Kazaklambia is known from a nearly complete juvenile. It's only missing the snout, front of the lower jaws, end of the tail, and some back vertebrae due to erosion. It's the most complete hadrosaur found in Kazakhstan. The mandible, or jaw, is broken in the front, and the teeth were poorly preserved. It had a low, hollow nasal crest, similar to the Prochenosaurus found in Alberta, Canada. But it had a better developed crest compared to North American Lambiosaurines. It's possible the crest developed early in Kazaklambia. Kazaklambia, or Kazaklambia, may be closely related to basal Lambiosaurines from Asia, such as Amurosaurus and Sintausaurus, and it helps to show that Lambiosaurines may have originated in Asia. And our fun fact of the day is about infrasound. Ooh. We had someone on Twitter ask us if dinosaurs like Struthiosaurus could have relied on infrasound to hear because Struthiosaurus had a pretty poor range of hearing. It's like, is that an alternative that maybe they could have used? So the short answer is no. (laughs) Struthiosaurus had a very poor range of hearing. It could only hear down to about 300 hertz, which is near middle C on the piano. And for comparison, humans hear down to about 20 hertz, which is three keys below the last key on a piano. It wouldn't really make sense for us to make a musical instrument. (laughs) That we could hear, yeah. (laughs) Below what we hear. Although I'm talking about the fundamental frequencies on a keyboard. So technically, every note has a lot of higher harmonics, also known as overtones in acoustics that go with each key. So the lowest part of Middle C is 300 hertz, but there are higher frequencies that go along with it, basically doubling 600, etc. But since humans make language, we define sounds based on our hearing ranges. So anything lower than 20 hertz is considered infrasound because it's below what we can hear. Just like how anything below what we can see is called infrared 
because red is the longest wavelength we can see. So anything beyond that, we call it infrared. Like, oh, it's it's too low to see. It's even you know longer wavelength than red. But there are plenty of animals that can see infrared, mm-hmm. and then we categorize it as infrared. But really, it's just a part of the world that we can't perceive easily. We can see it with infrared cameras, though, and they're sometimes called like thermal cameras because heat is in infrared. But back to sound. Since Struthiosaurus could only hear down to 300 hertz, it definitely couldn't use infrasound. Although I think using infrasound or talking about infrasound isn't really the right question, even though it's what everybody always says when they're talking about this sort of long-range communication, because it's not really about what the frequency is, whether or not it's technically below 20 hertz or above 20 hertz doesn't really matter. We're just talking about if they can communicate over long distances mm-hmm. using, yeah, low frequencies, because low frequencies are the only ones that carry over really long distances just because of the properties of how waves propagate. But I'm not going to get into all that. I thought about it, but I'm not going to. <laughs> <laughs> not today, anyway. Not today. So even though humans can hear down to 20 hertz, our hearing is actually really weak at the low end. If you've ever bought anything that's rated for loudness, like a fan, you might have seen a noise rating on it in DBA. That stands for decibels and A-weighted. So decibels are a measurement of signal strength. You can use it for all sorts of different things. It was actually originally invented for like signal strength over phone lines and things like that. Decibels are log base 10. So something that's 110 decibels is actually 10 times as powerful as 100 decibels. Hmm. It's not just 10% more as you might think. And humans perceive a 10 decibel increase as about twice as loud. Loudness is a really weird thing. It's not just strictly related to power. So if something is, say, 0 to 50 decibels, it's 2 to the 5th power louder. So 32 times as loud. (laughs) It's not just, you know, 50 more on some weird scale. Mm -hmm. When we're talking about sound, there's basically sound pressure level for decibels or dbspl and then the other main one people talk about is dba so with the sound pressure level it's literally just a measurement of how much air is being pressed so that's sort of like the true physical sense of how loud something is or how much air is being moved but dba is all about our human hearing of it and it takes into consideration the fact that we can't hear those really low frequencies as well that's the biggest difference at least Like most animals, our hearing sensitivity is best around our vocalization range, and we vocalize roughly in the 1,000 to 5,000 hertz range. So when you get too far below or above that range, our hearing isn't as good. For a couple examples, with DBA weighting, at around 100 hertz, our hearing is about 20 decibels less sensitive than it is at 1,000 hertz. So in other words, a quarter as strong. And when you get down to 20 hertz, it's at negative 50 decibels. Hmm. So we're at, you know, 132nd the hearing sensitivity as a thousand hertz, which is not very sensitive. No. It's why like subwoofers, you feel more than you hear, (laughs) even when they go down to 20 hertz. You know, you really don't hear subwoofers that much, even though technically we can hear 20 hertz. You just don't really hear it all that much. I will say, though because I've dealt with this a lot since we record sounds, DBA can be really annoying when you're recording things because microphones pick things up not in decibels A-weighted. They pick them up in, you know, the normal physical sort of sense of it. And if you buy something that's weighted at, say, 30 DBA, 
it could be that it's actually 80 decibels of sound pressure at 20 hertz, but because it's got that negative 50 applied to it, it's rated at 30 decibels. So it can actually seem a lot louder in real life than it is when it's weighted with the DBA weighting, especially because deep frequencies carry more easily. So like closing a door doesn't necessarily stop those lower frequencies, even if they're technically a low DBA weighting. And some people are more sensitive to those deep sounds than others. Plus stereo sometimes boost the deep frequencies to compensate for our lack of hearing. So if you record it, it can be a problem. Hmm. But DBA is still a good ballpark. And it's what OSHA the EU and Canadian safety standards used to protect people from hearing damage because the same decibels of something at 20 hertz versus 1,000 hertz, our ears will get a lot more damaged if it's at 1,000 hertz than 20 hertz. So all that is to say that even though under 20 hertz is considered infrasound, humans really don't hear very well below about 100 hertz. Some animals, though, can hear very well at 20 hertz and even below. Like which ones? One famous example of an animal that can use infrasound is the elephant. They can actually vocalize down to 16 hertz. They've been recorded at that frequency. And they took a larynx out of an elephant that died of natural causes, and they blew air through it to see when the vocal cords would sort of flap, like how our vocal cords do when we breathe through them and, you know, make our voice heard. Mm -hmm. And they found that it could produce sound at 16 hertz that way, too. Wow which is very deep. Yes. And they also have pretty sensitive hearing at that range as well. And since deep sounds travel farther, elephants can communicate around a distance of two to 10 kilometers or one to six miles, depending on how loud they're calling. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah, it's really far. Humans cannot do that. And The loudness is another really important factor when you're talking about that long-distance communication. It's not just the frequency, but how loud you can get. African elephants have been recorded up to 117 decibels, which is very, very loud. Mm -hmm. It's hard to do a direct comparison because it's a very different frequency, but a trained opera singer might be able to hit that loudness briefly, although not at that pitch. You know, It would be in the 1,000 to 5,000 range where our vocal cords are best Mm -hmm. because it almost always lines up the hearing and the speaking ranges. So another one that's even more impressive than elephants, but maybe a little bit less applicable to dinosaurs, are blue whales. They can hear down to about 14 hertz and maybe lower. Wow. And because sounds travel much better in solids and liquids than in air, they can communicate really far. There have been estimates that whales can communicate across thousands of kilometers or thousands of miles. You know, it's basically the same on that scale. Dory did it with her whale friends. Yes. (laughs) Although, even though it is a very low pitch and it seems like that's really important in the story, it's maybe more about the volume because they can reach 180 decibels, (laughs) which is an insanely loud sound. Mm -hmm. Uh, The pressure of that is nuts. Our ears can be permanently damaged by just a moment at 150 decibels, which is one eighth the perceived loudness of 180 decibels. And I've actually seen things where people talk about how if whales were really upset by people being in the water next to them, they could just make one of these vocalizations at a scuba diver and they might even kill the scuba diver. It's such a loud sound. It would really damage the person next to the whale. Whales must like humans. Yeah, yeah, they definitely tolerate us at least. (laughs) So back to dinosaurs. Whether or not any non-avian dinosaurs could use infrasound is really hard to know, but there are a few tricks we could use to get a best guess. 
We can estimate hearing ranges from inner ears, but to check vocalizations, we'd need to see their sound-producing organs, which is a lot harder, although they do usually overlap, so that's a good starting point. The best probable sound organ that we have preserved is the Parasaurolophus crest, the Lambiosaurine. The very lowest estimate of its possible vocalizations is around 55 hertz, which is technically too high to be considered infrasound, but again, we don't hear that well under 100 hertz. We draw the line at 20 hertz. 55 hertz is still very deep sound and could still be useful over a, a long distance if they could get loud enough. It's also possible that dinosaurs could produce infrasounds in other ways than just the head crest that we have preserved. They might be able to growl or you know, make that bellowy sound with their vocal cords, like how alligators do, also similar to how elephants do. But another one that's possibly more fun is <laughs> that they might have been able to boom. That's what an emu does to make its crazy sounds. So they have a special inflatable throat pouch, and it has an adjustable opening so it can change pitch. And then I can't even think of an analogy that's really good to it. I, I hear a lot of people compare it to a drum. I think that's the sensation that's the most similar to it that humans have experienced. Mm -hmm. I think the way the vocalization is made might be more like when you have those shipping inflatable airbags, when you pop those and there's that big pressure, mm. you know, or like popping a balloon too. Seems like it might be unpleasant to hear an emu boom. Yes. Apparently it's really disconcerting. They can go down to about 60 hertz, so again, not technically an infrasound, but emus can boom loud enough to be heard over a distance of about two kilometers or a mile, which is not that far off from you know what elephants are capable of with their vocalizations. So it's not really just about the frequency, it's about the loudness mm -hmm. and the sensitivity of the hearing of the animal and all those things. Also, I mean, whales the really long distance is useful because they can swim really long distances pretty efficiently and, you know, might want to know where they're headed. But when you're talking about land animals, I don't know if it's useful to communicate more than about 10 miles when you're talking like over a day's journey sort of thing. It might not be super helpful to be able to boom that loud. The interesting thing with dinosaurs is if you think about which dinosaur might be best set up for this long distance booming type behavior, the obvious answer is a sauropod, partly because they have that general sort of elephantness yep. <laughs> about them. And they're so big. Yeah, they're really big. With that also comes a really large neck. So if they have the emu style boom, there's a lot of space in there for that extra pouch. Or they might be able to use the air sacs in their body to make a sort of boom situation go. Or just, you know, big vocal folds in their neck. Lots of options that potentially sauropods could have, but that applies to a lot of other dinosaurs too. There are tons of huge dinosaurs, hadrosaurs, ceratopsians, theropods. Yeah, even tyrannosaurs. Lots of animals could potentially make really deep sounds to go over long distances. And again, whether or not the frequency is low enough to be considered infrasound probably doesn't really matter that much. It's more about could these dinosaurs produce low enough sounds that they could travel a long distance, maybe under 80 hertz type range. And then how loud could they get? Another thing to consider if you ever find yourself traveling back in time. <laughs> yeah. Or wondering why an emu is making this terrible booming noise at you. Yeah. Or alligators for that matter with their growls. Oh, yeah. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thank you for listening. If you want more information, more dinosaur goodness, 
And to see our show notes with all the links, then go to our website at inodino.com. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.